Hello, and welcome to Seen and Unseen Aloud. It's great to have you with us. Here at Seen and Unseen Aloud, we're gearing up to celebrate our first birthday. Doesn't seem quite possible, but we've been going for a whole year, every week. We've heard Christian perspectives on just about everything, from ADHD to Taylor Swift, Israel and Hamas to moral algorithms, the coronation and the seven deadly sins. To thank you for your support, we want to invite requests for our anniversary episode. If there's an article that you've particularly enjoyed and would like to hear again, please let us know and we'll put together a compilation of the most popular ones. If you'd like to get involved with this, please head over to our website, seenandunseen.com, where you'll find a quick form to fill in to submit your request. We'd love to know more about where everyone is, what you're doing while you're listening to us. Maybe you're doing the washing up or going for a walk. We'd love to get a picture of our seen and unseen community. So there are a couple of questions about that too. Please submit requests by Tuesday the 12th of March. For now... Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, get ready to listen, to discover a world that is greater, more full of meaning and sense than you ever imagined. Taking the Train Taught Me About Time Travel by James Sampson Foster I like trains, or rather, I like the idea of trains. I feel a sense of entirely false nostalgia for a railway age that I am far too young to have lived through. I have this picture-postcard image of a time when trains puffed along through idyllic countryside scenes, trailing fluffy white clouds behind them. Each commuter railway service, a kind of Hogwarts Express to a magical world, in a time when trains were on time, sheep grazed contentedly trackside, and the journey was the destination. A time which probably never existed. The reality doesn't quite live up to the fantasy. My picture postcard is a little different. Sweaty armpits, stale air, sardines in a can. Wish you were here. My journeys are slightly less magical. Or they are, at least, on the days when I'm able to get anywhere at all. Today isn't one of those days. My train is cancelled, again, because of course it is. The other day, it was a landslide across the tracks. In the Midlands, the flat Midlands. But today, it's something to do with strikes, continuing disruption and overtime working bans. The Hogwarts Express is cancelled due to a shortage of train crew. As much as I enjoy the concourse of Birmingham New Street Station, I feel I spend entirely too much time there. Rather than admiring the countryside scenes of my imagination, instead I find myself with no choice but to spend an extended moment admiring the glowing amber of the station clock. Enthroned between destination boards, reigning supreme over the train travellers, is the clock. Ticking, digitally anyway. In its court, I stand transfixed, not because I'm hypnotised, captivated or held hostage, but because I have nowhere else to go. Of course, clocks, railways, steam or otherwise, and strike action are not incidental to the situation I find myself in. The truth is that the age of steam never really lived up to my rose-tinted imaginings. In reality, it was the genesis of a clockwork age. An age of factories and precision, where cards were punched, steam whistles sounded, and time was metered out. 
an age that we haven't fully escaped. The station clock may be digital, but our lives are still clockwork. Ever since, people have continued to dance to uncomfortable mechanic rhythms. The striking workers are simply deciding to stop dancing for a while. There was another genesis of a different age before all the noise. An age of sea and sky and forests of trees. A garden age with a different tune to dance to. A rhythm of planting, of wind rustling the wheat, of harvest, of rest. A life-shaped rhythm of goodness and grace, where relationship to one another, to the world, was central, rather than productivity. This Eden is at once the point of departure, as well as arrival. Appearing as a gardener, Jesus rises from the tomb with an open invitation to return to a life lived at God's speed. As an alternative to the rush of commuters going nowhere very fast, the way of Jesus is a journey with a true destination, life in all its fullness. Full, not overfilled. Daydreaming, time passes, my wait ends. As I board my train and my nostrils fill once again with its stale air, I think about the wind through the trees. It's a miracle that ITV's drama docs tell gospel truth by George Pitcher. ITV has reopened a debate over the value and validity of drama documentaries with two immensely powerful political serials. Breathtaking, set in hospital wards as the Covid crisis hit the UK, concluded last week. Before that, Mr Bates versus the Post Office did more for justice in a few hours for wrongly accused sub-postmasters sacked and imprisoned for frauds that didn't exist than any number of leaden public inquiries stretching into a cynically can-kicking future. A regular refrain from doubters of Drama Doc is to question whether events portrayed really happened. At the most extreme end of denial, invariably motivated by political self-interest, if a scene can be shown to be non-factual, then the whole thing can be dismissed as rubbish. I'm here to knock down that argument, not least because it has the most profound implications for people of faith and how they own their sacred scriptures. Take Breathtaking, based on the book of the experiences of frontline doctor and breathtakingly good writer Rachel Clark. There were more than a couple of scenes that I thought wouldn't, indeed couldn't, have happened in a factual reality. I can't know because I wasn't there. But importantly, I don't care either, for reasons I'll come to. These scenes related to the death from Covid contracted on duty as a consequence of inadequate PPE equipment of a much-loved fellow nurse called Davina. A colleague reads cards from friends to her as she switches off the life support machines, while our heroine consultant bears tearful witness. Later, all her colleagues gather, socially distanced, to watch a live stream of her funeral. If these events happened in real time, then I apologise profusely to Clark and her team. But my guess, 
and this makes the drama even more heartbreaking rather than less, is that they simply wouldn't have had the time. As with soldiers in a war zone, which is the regular analogy of choice, they were overrun by critical cases for whom survival was the imperative. They surely would not have had the bandwidth, as it were, to bury their dead. Why this doesn't matter, indeed why it is vital that it doesn't, is that drama addresses human emotions as well as human experiences. So it's at least as important to express how it felt as to show exactly what happened. This isn't manipulative, because truth is not only about events, but about love and hope and self-sacrifice and much else besides, all of which point to bigger truths about the human condition. Not so long ago, you couldn't bump into anyone from the digital marketing professions without them mooing on about storytelling. The idea that corporates and their brands need to frame their offers to market in an engaging narrative. I've always thought they were rather late to that party, so stories are important. Who knew? Similarly, journalists, or reporters at least, speak of their products as stories. And the good ones tell us something we don't already know. But the effort here, or at least it should be, is to relate what is provably factually true. That is rather different from the motivation of those of us with a religious faith, for whom truth with a capital T points to something that transcends the demands of simple reportage. Yes, it's about an emotional response, but emotions are human too. They're also insufficient on their own for full engagement with the divine drama. The mystery of this drama is played out at church on at least a weekly basis in the Eucharist. When Christians come together in communion as the mystical body of Christ and as if invited to his supper for the very first time. It's not just an event or a reenactment, it's the drama of now and of the real presence. Call it the real thing. Mystery is what the scriptures of the three Abrahamic faiths endeavour to address. For Christians, the life, death and resurrection of the Christ for Jews, the deliverance of God's people, and for Muslims, the revelation of the prophet. These are not just historical records. They are stories that explore the mind of God, the better to understand human existence. That's to explore the miraculous, to allow room for miracles in human ex existence. At Easter, Christians will celebrate what we might call the big one, the resurrection of the Christ and the defeat of death. So, to that obvious question, what really happened? Well, something happened. Something so incalculably enormous that within three days of the crucifixion, the utterly defeated and dispersed first disciples were transformed. Something so incomprehensible that they struggled to explain it with the language of simple reportage, though they tried. Something for which untold thousands were suddenly prepared to die. Something which was apparently defeated by worldly power, but it is alive and well as the world's largest religions two millennia later. Those somethings are miracles. So ask not, did it happen? Ask instead, what has happened? And the story is not only about what has happened, 
it's really about how emotionally and spiritually we feel and respond to it. In short, we're asked to give ourselves up to this drama documentary. It's breathtaking. Shall the Tyrants Win? by Michael Bird. Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny was murdered in prison. Precisely how he died, we do not know. But many have wondered whether his death signals the end of organised opposition to Putin's regime in Moscow. Navalny was famous as an anti-corruption and pro-democracy activist. He survived a Novichok poisoning attempt in 2020, then, after recuperating in Germany, decided to return to Russia a short time later. Once back in Russia, he was soon arrested, sentenced to 19 years in a penal colony inside the Arctic Circle, and then, as we now know, murdered. On hearing of the death of Navalny, I watched the documentary about his life's work, how despite harassment, murder attempts and imprisonments, he tried to bring freedom and democracy to Russia. This was always going to be an uphill battle since Russia, or parts thereof, have been a dictatorship since the defeat of the Tsars in 1480. Moscow, its Russian lands, have been ruled by the Tsardom of Russia, 1547, the Russian Empire, 1721, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, 1922, and the Russian Federation, 1991. Despite a brief flirtation with the democracy in the 1990s, Russia returned to its de facto state as a military dictatorship when Putin took power in a bloodless coup in 2000. Since then, whether as prime minister or president, Putin has increasingly locked Russia under his iron grip and become increasingly hostile towards the West and Western notions of liberalism. Putin's regime is known for its brutality. From the Salisbury poisonings against Sergei Nulia Skipral back in 2018 to the gunning down of Russian defector Maxim Kuzminov in Spain a few days after Navalny's death. The torrid history of Russia as an empire and the violence of Putin's regime against its own people make you wonder if any democratic or liberal resistance is futile. As King Theoden in The Lord of the Rings says when his people faced annihilation by an army of orcs, so much death, what can men do against such reckless hate? But Navalny had an answer. It was to tell the truth, even if that cost him, even to the point of being willing to lay down his life for others. These things came directly from Navalny's Christian faith. Navalny, during his show trial in 2021, stated, The fact is that I am a Christian, which usually sets me up as an example for the constant ridicule in the Anti-Corruption Foundation, because mostly our people are atheists. And I was once quite a militant atheist myself, Navalny said, but now I am a believer. And that helped me a lot in my activities, because everything becomes much, much easier. Navalny claimed that he was especially motivated by the words of Jesus. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. 
Death is the tyrant's ultimate weapon to terrorise, to force people to suffer in silence, to make them accept enslavement and despotism as normal and unchangeable. But the promise of resurrection means that God intends to undo whatever the tyrant does. The worst of evil is no match for resurrection. The goodness of God's power and the power of God's goodness always defeats death. God's promise of resurrection is not pious longing, but a political doctrine, the hope for creation to be renewed, powers to be reconciled, and all things to be put to rights. Faith in God's life-giving power is our defiance against evil powers, against the leaders, against the authorities, against the powers that rule in the world in this dark age against the wicked spiritual elements in the heavenly places, as St. Paul writes, and defiance is contagious. When many men hunger for power, Christians are called to thirst for righteousness, as Navalny did. Putin is not the only brutal dictator on the scene. There is the communist leader, Xi Jinping, in China, the socialist dictator, Nicolas Maduro, in Venezuela, the military council led by Min Aung Liang in Myanmar, the Shia theocrat Ali Khamenei in Iran, or the kleptocracy of Manasseh Sogavare in the Solomon Islands. Then there is the danger of Christian nationalism that also looms in the winds of Hungary and the USA. Yet the Christian faith teaches us that every Caesar, Tsar, King, General and President who sets themselves up as an invincible and infallible icon of power will see their icon smashed eventually. Like the statue of Ozymandias in Shelley's poem, irrespective of what depths of horror despots attain, no matter how much they self-aggrandise, their reign will one day be no more than a shattered visage at the feet of Jesus. This is the truth that Jesus spoke to Pilate, what Paul said to Herod Agrippa II, and what courageous Christians like Navalny say today. In the face of tyranny and terror, what is to be done? We can cherish Navalny's memory, pray for his work to continue, but above all, we take solace in the fact that Jesus says, here on earth, you will have many trials and sorrows. But take heart, because I have overcome the world. That is not a dream or a distant hope. It's a promise. A promise we make good with prayers, protests, energy and efforts to build for the kingdom of Christ. To prepare the earth for the day when tyrants, terror and tears are no more. By doing such things, we, in effect erect a billboard saying, the powers will be pacified, the lost will be found, the darkness will be cured by light, the world's injustices will be undone, and God's love will reign supreme. In other words, a time is coming, and now is already burgeoning like a breaking dawn, when Navalny's thirst for righteousness will be more than satisfied. Thank you for listening. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to get more curated articles from Seen and Unseen Aloud. We hope you discover a world that is greater, more full of meaning and sense than you ever imagined.